hello and uh, welcome to Pep Talk, the Persuasive Evangelism Podcast. I'm Andy Bannister uh, from Solas and uh, I am down a co-host. Normally my uh, partner in crime, Christy Mayer uh, from Oak Hill College in London, joins me uh, for a bit of banter and, and chat with uh, whatever guests we've got on the show. But actually, I, uh, she's not here with us today. So I have my colleague, Gavin Matthews. Gavin, thank you for leaping into the, uh, the co-chair's seat. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. I think the Christy Mayer fan club are going to riot, but don't worry, she will be back next week, I'm told. She's currently in the middle of a philosophy lecture, so she will be back. I think I'd rather she does that lecture to her students and and not on pep talk. She'll just get confused with long words like (laughs) epistemology and other kind of things. But we have a great guest uh, for us, uh, with us today, an old friend of Solas who's done several things with us across the, uh, the, the the years. He's spoken at conferences, he's been on webinars. Uh, Dave Hutchings, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm thrilled and uh, very honoured to have made it this far. <laughs> and whereabouts in the country are you, Dave? Where are you dialing in from? I'm from York, which I consider to be north, but you will consider to be south. Um, <laughs> and uh, York is kind of the centre of the universe uh, if you think about the uh, late 600s, early 700s with um, uh, the Bead and um, Alquin running running the medieval scholasticism so well, there we yeah go. York, York is the center of the world as far as I'm I concerned. also grew up though Dave thinking it was the center of the world because my uh one of my grandfather one of my grandfathers was from was a Yorkshireman and uh you know he would always say you should never ask a man if he's from Yorkshire and he never ask a man if he's from Yorkshire because of uh, if he isn't you'll have embarrassed him deeply and if he is he'll tell you within two minutes anyway so he was right because I told you at around about one minute and forty seconds. I think, you did, so. so he was he was right in that regard. Well, for those who don't know, uh, Dave, do do uh, check out the other stuff he's done on the so for so last. So I'll put a link in the show notes. He uh, you did a, you did a webinar and a few other bits and pieces. But um, Dave is a uh, you are a high school teacher, right? Been teaching uh, there in, in for seventeen years, right? So what do you teach? Uh, I teach physics to thirteen to eighteen year olds, so GCSE and A level physics. And along the way, I've taught various other things too. But my main topic is um, electricity, forces, space, um, the Big Bang, uh, temperature. I mean, I can see you getting excited now I, as, I, I, as I mention it. Yeah, I, I, I'm literally just bubbling with it, with it, with, with, with excitement. Um, no, very seriously. Um, but then also the other thing, before we get into some of the stuff we want to talk about, Dave is also uh, an author, uh, published three books and a chapter in another. But your most recent book uh, of popes and unicorns science christianity and how the conflict thesis fooled the world we might get into some of the themes from that book in the in the interview but there'll be a we'll put a link to particularly to that book but also to some of uh, dave's other stuff again in the show notes if you are if you uh, after you listen to dave for 20 minutes you're like i want to hear more of this uh this 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 guy um then um you know, there'll be links to how you can do that but let's start with the whole question of teaching uh dave because one of the things i i really admire about you i know some folks who are Christians and teachers find it quite ha- quite hard to be a Christian in teaching. And, and sometimes the temptation is to kind of sort of like hide your light under a rock and go, well, I'm just going to teach. I'm not going to I'm not going to be public in my faith. But you don't do that. You don't hide the fact you're a Christian. What are some of the lessons that you've you've learned playing that out? Because I'm assuming there have been things that have worked well. I mean, things that haven't worked so well. What has being a Christian uh, for 17 years teaching taught you about about being public about your faith? Well, I suppose the funny thing about being a physics teacher is that you would have to fight quite hard to keep God out of the conversation. Um, 
he arrives naturally when you talk about the big questions um, like where did the universe come from or you start uh, exploring topics like how big is space it's almost inevitable that a student at some point is going to ask a god question um, it might be the most obvious ones like do you believe in god um, or they they might be um, ones that are that open up that possibility so another common one would be you know do you believe in aliens um well when you get a question like that i think you've got a choice um you can shut it down or you can say well a student has asked a question <laughs> they they've brought it up the class is interested what kind of teaching do i want to model do i want to model teaching that shuts questions down or do I want to model teaching that encourages questions um, and allows people to uh, go off on, on various tangents if they want to? So if we take the alien question, for example, I, when, when the students ask me, uh, do you believe in aliens? I say, well, I think that actually, that's a very different question depending on whether you believe in God or not. And I might even throw it back to them, you know, do you, do you believe in God? Um, and once you've got that, point made you can say well let's think about this if there's no god then the process that brings about life has to um you know it doesn't have a creator there has to be some process that brings about life that is uh either random or lucky um or that life is is inevitable uh, based on the laws of physics but when we study the laws of physics life doesn't seem to be inevitable at all so you're answering in a physics way um, and, and you can then say, so if I didn't believe in God, I would find the prospect of there being aliens uh, anywhere else in the universe very unlikely. Because life is very, very unlikely if there's nobody stepping in to make it happen. That's what all the science tells us. But if you do believe in God, it's quite a different question. And the question becomes, do I think God has made life anywhere else in the universe? And so... If you're tackling a question like that, you might think, well, um, what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible mentions angels. Angels aren't humans, but they are God's creation. Um, and so maybe if you want to think of angels as aliens, that's life elsewhere in the universe, um, then yes, you know, I, I believe in aliens. But if you're saying, what about beings on another planet, um, a bit like humans, I say, well, the Bible doesn't really say anything about that. So it's an open question. And in fact, that's what was decided in the 1200s when the monks um, in various different monasteries were wondering about this. Were, did God make anybody anywhere else? Um, and all of a sudden, what you've done is you've had a God conversation. But you've had a God conversation without preaching. You've taken their lead on it. You've shown them different ways of thinking about the world. Um, and... Uh, it's usually quite a positive, interesting interaction. Um, and so uh, that would be an example, I think, of being a Christian in the classroom um, without layering it on thick, um, without it being, hopefully, without it being cringeworthy and leaving space for students to go away and have a think about that themselves. And you've probably had lots of interesting conversations over the years. But what would you say to a student who would come to you and say, but my other science teacher 
says that this is all stupid and, and that uh, there's no God and that God is completely ridiculous if you're a scientist. What do I say to my other science teacher who is taking a kind of a radically atheist line in the classroom? I've, I've had this with one friend doing A-levels in England and another one doing Scottish hires where a science teacher has taken a radically atheist line at the front of the class, almost mocking people with any faith and claiming that as the scientific high ground. And the student says to you, Mr. Hutchings, what do I say to my teacher? Yeah, it's a very difficult scenario when there's a clear power structure or authority structure and like that, where um, a, the teacher has authority in the classroom. Um, and it's a little bit like uh, sometimes you hear, you know, you can't win an argument against the person with the microphone um, because they are in charge. So an argument is a bad idea. But what are, what's a good idea is to ask questions. So one question that would be interesting to ask, for example, would be, um, which which paper was it um, that you read that, that showed that God didn't exist? Because I'd like to read it. So if you could tell me the paper that, that you've read, you know, and what journal it's in, um, where sci- you know, science has shown that God doesn't exist, I'd like to read it for myself. Well, there won't be one. You know, there, there isn't a paper like that. Um, and so what you're beginning to do in a question like that is is getting the teacher to provide evidence for what they're saying. Um, or you could say something like, uh, another question would be, well, if, if um, belief in God is unscientific, why are three quarters of all Nobel Prize winners in the scientists, in the sciences, Christians? That just seems strange. Um, so if you go in armed with a few of these questions, um, that's how you can handle a power structure. You're asking up. You're asking um, deferentially. Hopefully you're asking somebody who's got an open mind. Um, or another question would be, uh, why is it that um, so many people at the forefront of the what we call the scientific revolution, why, why were they all Christians? Um, you know, if they were all Christians, then why did they start science going? Um, or you could say, could you give me an example of an atheist who contributed to the scientific revolution? I'd be interested to know who that was. Or where have you read? Where, where have you read some of these things? So you're you're putting it back to the teacher to say, you know, where have you got this from? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's I think that's helpful. And one of the things I think. I've learned over the years, and I kind of wish I knew actually when I was a student. You know, it's interesting hearing you saying this, Dave, because I'm listening there thinking, gosh, I wish I'd had a teacher like you when I was a teenager to help me with the other atheist ones. I think that 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 art form of asking questions and just poking, which teenagers are actually very good at doing, of going, well, hang on a minute, where's the proof? Where's the evidence? I think one of the things though that lies behind a lot of this is, of course, there is this sort of assumption that many people have it is an assumption that obviously faith and science are are totally at loggerheads they always have been and of course i'm very struck by that idea you threw in a few minutes ago where you said you know medieval monks were thinking about aliens and they were asking questions about life on other planets and exploring this stuff and you know that'd be news to a lot of people the new book that you've done of popes and unicorns is really kind of a you know a, a, a deep dive and on pep talk we don't always do deep dives but i also know you're brilliant at sort of summarizing is really a deep dive into this, you know, looking at where did this, where did this so-called conflict thesis come from that faith and science are doing this, you know, 
give us a bit of an overview. What's the sort of, you know, the, the bluffer's guide uh, to, <laughs> to, to that? Because that is the elephant in the room, isn't it? That I think is feeding a lot of this, that obviously science and faith don't fit together. They've always been at war and that, that's why they're at war today. Um, help us think some of that through. Sure. I think it's very helpful for someone to gradually be able to put together a timeline. So if you say, right, let's go pre-1600s. So in the church, pre-1600, the idea that science and faith were at war with each other literally did not exist. That would, If you had suggested something like that, it, it would have been considered to be absolutely bonkers because the investigation of the natural world was just the part of, of Christian life asking questions about about the natural world because that was one way that you would get to know the creator of that world better so pre-1500 you know there's no issue in fact probably pre-1600 then in the 1600s you have what we call the scientific revolution um now it's a bit of a cheat and it's a bit simplistic to to call it that but there were lots of things that happened in the 1600s where uh, prominent christians really started to push experimental science. You know, we're, gonna, we're not just going to think and reason about the world, we're also going to carry out experiments. Um, and interestingly, one of the main reasons that they started doing that was a belief that uh, when, when Adam and Eve fell, they didn't just fall morally, but they fell mentally. So their mental faculties became unreliable. And so just sitting and reasoning about the world might not get you the right answer because you might not be able to trust your mind because you're a fallen human being. So you better check your ideas. And that's where experimental science came from. The experimental scientific method came from the Christian doctrine of the fall. So in the 1600s, you have um, the church and its doctrine driving science. And then in the 1700s, you begin to get the first real murmurings of, well, um, there may be some sort of difference between what we're doing in science and what we're doing in in um, in faith, in religion. And and that mur those murmurings in the 1700s become shouts in the 1800s. And that's when we arrive at two key figures, one called John William Draper, he was an Englishman who moved to America. He was a chemist, a very, very successful scientist. He took the first ever photograph of the moon. He took the first ever clear photograph of a human face. Um, he, uh, he was hugely influential. When he died, one of his obituaries said he may be the greatest American scientist ever to have lived, which is quite the claim. And the other person is called Andrew Dixon White. Uh, and he was the founding president of Cornell University, uh, a senator and a diplomat and a, a teacher of history and of English literature. So these two people, John William Draper and Andrew Dixon White, they decided to compile all of the science versus religion stories they could find in history. And they wrote two books. Uh, John William Draper's was called Conflict Between Religion and Science, and um, the uh, book by Andrew Dixon White is called The Warfare of Science with Theology. And between them, those two books, they were bestsellers. Everybody owned them. And they're where those stories are all put together that probably sit in the back of your mind, like 
Galileo being thrown into jail. The church taught everyone the earth was flat. The church banned dissection. The church binned Greek and Roman science and ushered in the dark ages. The church banned inoculation. The church relentlessly persecuted scientists. Um, Calvin said, who are you going to trust, Copernicus or the Holy Spirit? So they compile all these stories into these two books. And these books took over. They took over the world. And that's where all those stories come from, the late 1800s. Um, and uh, that's the origin. So you go behind, you go further back in time than that. There's no issue. There's these two books that come crashing onto the scene in the, in the 1800s and um, have seeped into our, um, our modern way of thinking about life with the help of people like Neil deGrasse Tyson um, and Dan Brown with his Angels and Demons and Da Vinci Code. So that's the origin of all of these stories. And if you would like me to, I can go through and debunk them. But if that answer was too long, you can trim it all back. How about go beyond debunking it? Um, because I know that it's just the starting point of just an assumption that so many friends and neighbours and you know colleagues and friends of the family have. That is their starting assumption. I've, one of my friends said recently, you know, I believe in evidence, but you believe in faith. And and so there was almost a kind of a demarcation. And she was saying, you know, everything you have to say is outside my credibility structure. I don't even have to listen because I have science. So how can we start to change that narrative, change the story, and try and break down this idea that science and faith are in two kind of hermetically sealed boxes and there's you know, never the twain shall meet? How can we address the problem that has seeped down from those two characters you mentioned and gripped our society so profoundly? Well, I think the, the fascinating thing about it is that when somebody says, I believe in evidence and I follow science, that that, that box that they're sitting in is a Christian box. That, that scientific method box um, is a Christian, uh, it's an outfall of Christian thinking. So I'll give you a few examples of why. So the first and most obvious one is that Christianity is monotheistic. There's one God. If there's one God in charge of the world, then you expect there to be some kind of regularity and order in the world. You're not expecting there to be um, a pantheon of competing gods that make life rather unpredictable. You've got one supreme god in charge. Um, and so uh, C.S. Lewis says that uh, men became scientific because they believed in a law giver. That's why they went searching for the laws. Okay. So my challenge straight back to somebody would be, okay, um, why do you believe there are laws in the universe? Where does that come from? You've got no reason to believe that there are fundamental scientific laws in the universe. And in fact, nobody looked for fundamental mathematical scientific laws in the universe, pre-1600, really. Um, they looked for patterns, but they certainly didn't look for mathematical, physical laws in the way that, that we do now. Um, it was the Christians that started looking for those. Johannes Kepler, for example... He, he said, right, um, God made the world. God made me. God made me in his likeness. My brain is therefore like a mini version of God's brain. So if the brain that made the world and my brain are similar, I should be able to understand something about that world. And he set out to look for rules and patterns in the world in order to get to know God better. And he was really firm on his theology. He said, a Christian 
should expect to find mathematical law in the universe. And I'm going to go look for it. That was his hypothesis. If Christianity is true, I'm going to find mathematical laws. He went and looked for them. He found mathematical laws. So this person's belief in rationality and evidence, they just don't realise, but you can tell them, um, the fact that they believe the universe is rational and that it's possible to find evidence is a Christian belief. I love a, I love that approach of just, well, I suppose in a sense it's the turning the tables approach, isn't it? Um, yeah. of, of taking the objection and, and turning it back and saying, well, hang on a moment, you've got some thinking here to do. Um, I'm conscious we're running rapidly out of out of out of time, and there's <laughs> we've barely scratched the surface. Dave, you've been studying this stuff and immersing this stuff for years. You know it inside out and backwards, and, and people want to dig obviously more deeply into it. Obviously, one thing they can do is have a check out of your books. But for folks who are listening to this, who are like, oh man, I, I you know I couldn't I couldn't give it the kind of answer that that, that Dave gave how do you you know what are some of the kind of things that you might recommend to i don't like to use an ordinary christian there are no ordinary christians someone who hasn't got your specialism what about the two or three things that might be helpful just keep in the back pocket just very kind of useful things that perhaps you know almost any christian should know around this even if they then have to go look to go deeper you want to check out dave's books what are some of the some of the really practical things that that perhaps every christian should be carrying around in their heads or their back pockets when it comes to these kind of questions that come up from our friends and colleagues yeah, okay, so there are a couple of useful sound bites. Um, one would be that uh, no organised church has ever put to death anybody uh, for their scientific beliefs in all of recorded history. That's a that's a useful thing to have on the back bench. So if someone says, you know, oh, uh, the church has always persecuted scientists, you know, well, you know, can you? That's interesting because in all of recorded history, and make that point. Um, Another useful one to have in the background is um, to say, well, actually, historians of science universally agree, universally agree that there is no historic conflict between science and religion. This is the absolute consensus across the board. Um, and then a third one, um, and this is this is not really so much a God and science thing. This is just in general when you're talking to people about God. People are more likely to listen to you and to think about the things you say if they like you, if they find you likable. And that's difficult, isn't it? You say, well, how can I be likable? But I think there's one very simple way to make yourself much more likable. And that is people tend to like people who like them. And if you can always try and find a way to genuinely like the person that you're talking to, you know, enjoy them, clearly be on their side in every conversation so that the person knows that what you want is the best for them. They are much more likely to go away and then think about what you said. That is fantastic. I think that's a good note to end it on as well because our time is gone. just want to say thank you so much, Dave, for being on Pep Talk this week. That's been really, really interesting. Dave is the author of of Popes and Unicorns, looking at the origins of the science versus faith conflict model, where it came from, how it grabbed our society, and how as Christians we can respond to it. That's been really helpful, thinking both about your work as a teacher and your work as a scientist and speaking into this whole area. Thank you for joining us and goodbye from us. Anything you'd like to add at the end, Andy? No, I think that's good. We'll uh, see you in two weeks' time for another episode of Pep Talk with another guest and hopefully uh, Christy will be finished 
uh, scaring people with long philosophical terms and be back in the uh, in the driving seat. You've been listening to Pep Talk, and uh, thanks for listening. Bye.